0: Verse uh, 21, we'll pick it up. Here he's been talking about Esau who could not get over his hatred for Jacob uh, that had been there all along throughout their boyhood and so on. Interestingly, we looked at a petroglyph yesterday that showed someone, a, a, a figure grabbing the heel of another with his hand, which is the story of Jacob and Esau. I've seen that petroglyph in at least one other place, uh, and I don't think anybody just dreamed up the idea of of that. Uh, if you didn't know the story of Jacob and Esau, you'd never think to draw a figure of someone else just grabbing someone else's heel. That's not something we normally do. But when they were born, one stuck a hand out and grabbed hold, and they put the... Uh, ribbon on there to show that that was the firstborn, <laughs> and uh, it was quite a story actually. But the heel grabber <coughs> is the story of Esau and Jacob. Anyway, this is talking about our repentance and not getting into a, to the point in our hatred for anyone that we cannot get over it, uh, as Esau did. But down in verse 21, and it says, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Uh, so he's telling us we don't, we're not before the mountain that quaked with Moses But we're coming before the whole heavenly throng, from God the angels and on down, and before the church of God. Uh, And to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect or made mature. So here again, he invokes uh, a thought of our forefathers. We're coming before our forefathers, who were judged ahead of us. In other words, they set an example for us to follow, and those examples are laid out for us here in the Bible to teach us, to show us uh, how to come to perfection ourselves because of what those men went through, Uh, good, bad, and in different. And they had character flaws, they had character strengths, they went through affliction and trial and torment and trouble and, and martyrdom. So uh, their examples cry out to us, even, he says, even as he says, Abel's blood cries out from the ground. Anyway, he's saying, this, this is what is assembled before us. This is what we are dealing with. And to Emmanuel, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So he's comparing the sacrifice of Christ here with the sacrifice that Abel offered. And Abel himself, in one sense, became a sacrifice, uh, having been killed by his brother. But it's the blood of sprinkling of the animals that he sacrificed is what is being referred to here. Uh, There's a great deal being said there that we could miss very easily. I know people say that... uh, There was no law until God made the covenant with ancient Israel. Well, what is Paul saying here? He's talking about Christ establishing the new covenant with the New Testament church. And he's comparing it to the blood of the animals that Abel sacrificed. So he's actually saying that Abel was under the terms of the old covenant. Under the laws of God from the very beginning, he understood about animal sacrifices. He understood about law. We saw yesterday that Cain understood that there was to be no murder. That's one of the Ten Commandments. So, a covenant had been established. Do we even imagine the man had no direction and no rules from Adam until Moses? That they could... Basically, do as they wished. Uh, we'll find when we talk about Noah that there was all kinds of sin going on on the face of the earth, and it was reckoned as sin. So obviously they had to have been taught. When God taught Adam and Eve in the garden, I'm sure he gave them the rules. And one of them was, don't eat that, <laughs> which they decided to do anyway. Uh, but Cain and Abel certainly understood, and were living under the terms of the Old Covenant. Uh, what does the Old Covenant tell you? If you sin, you die. And those people died. Uh, so, obviously, there was sin involved. And sin is the breaking of the law, is the point. So the law had to be there if sin existed. So he goes all the way back to Abel to say Abel had certain promises of of life, of blessing physically, under the terms that he was giving the offering that he gave. But Christ offered us something more, that is, eternal life. However, uh, we have to grasp, that he must have given special instruction to some people that others did not get. Because we will find that some of the Old Testament fathers understood life eternal. They knew that it was being offered at least to them. Now, it hasn't been offered to the populace as a whole until the New Testament church. And even then, it's not offered... To everyone, is it? Only to those whom the Father calls? And no man can come except the Father draw him. So even though the new covenant is there today, it has been made, it is a covenant that is made with individuals that God chooses to show his truth to. You cannot know the truth. You cannot understand the truth unless God opens your mind to get it. You can't be smart enough to understand it. There are a lot of very, very intelligent people who've who've studied the Bible, some of them all their lives. They've written commentaries, some of them very astute people, who don't have a clue what the Bible's talking about, don't have a clue the plan of salvation or man's purpose on earth, and they've read and studied and commented on the Bible all their lives. Some of those commentators wrote about the Old Testament, the New Testament. They got, some of them, commentary, several volumes, big, thick, heavy books. And they don't have a clue. You read through their comments about this scripture or that scripture, they don't understand God. They don't understand His plan. There are people who have memorized the entire Bible and can quote it to you word for word all the way through and don't understand a word of what it's talking about. And here are a bunch of dummies sitting here today and we understand. Isn't that incredible? God chooses us individually to work with today. Protestants think the new covenant's there for everybody. No, it's not. It's only offered on a person-by-person basis. The world is not offered the new covenant. They're still under the terms of the old, made with Moses in the desert. But God made covenants and talked things over and offered salvation to a few in the Old Testament. Paul uh, names a lot of those in Hebrews 11, and as we go through some of the lives of these men, we we will see that they understood the resurrection, that they understood life eternal. So he was very, very selective in the Old Testament, and only offered it to a few who were truly seeking to follow him. Now, in the New Testament he hasn't necessarily offered it to people who were truly seeking him. Uh, like Paul, who was not truly seeking Christ or God, uh, who was struck down on the road to Damascus, and says, You will learn. <laughs> uh, so sometimes the calling comes regardless. On the other hand, he does tell us, Seek and you will find. So, there is an option there if a person shows that they truly would want to find God and obey Him and follow Him, that God may indeed say, There's one I think I'll go ahead and call, because they truly seem to have a heart and mind of wanting to know about me and serve me. So, He's called some of them, and people came across the plain truth blowing across the desert or, you know, things of that nature. Somebody just said, listen to this broadcast. They hadn't a clue, but it caught their attention. So it was God who was doing the calling and even instigating the uh, connection. And in some cases, though, uh, where they were seeking, he said, okay, I'll call them uh, on that merit. You know, the world is going to be judged on the terms of the Old Covenant. We 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 grasp that, do we not? Uh, that covenant was made, and the New Covenant has not been offered to everybody by any means, only those whom God has called. So, God is going to give us the tribulation, the seven last plagues, and... He can't be judging this nation on the terms of the new covenant, can he? Think about it. If he was, they would receive eternal death in the lake of fire, because they're not obeying him. They're going to receive physical death. That was the terms of the old covenant, because of breaking the Ten Commandments that were in that covenant. And they will be resurrected in the, at the end of the thousand years and given an opportunity to receive the new covenant with the promise of eternal life if they are converted and obey. So they're not even offered the new covenant until that time. The Methodists, the Baptists, all those people, they don't even understand the new covenant. They think they're living under it, But do they know the purpose of mankind? Do they know that we're to become God? No, that's blasphemy to them. They think that we're just going to be some kind of a spook floating on a cloud. A cloud sitting on a cloud or something like that. But they're not being judged by the new covenant. You and I are. Judgment is now on the church. We're being judged eternally right now. This nation around us is being judged by their physical lives and the sins that they're committing, and it will be a physical death, but they will be resurrected and have an opportunity of eternal life. That's when they're offered the new covenant, but not now. We have been selected. I think we need to truly grasp that. I know we, we know that. But at the same time, do we realize how special that is that God opened your mind and mine to his truths and his plan and his purpose for mankind and has given us what he's given us to help us grow, to overcome, and to receive his Holy Spirit. There are people out in the Protestantism that talk about the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit all the time and how it guides them and leads them. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. They have not had the Holy Spirit conceived in them. They don't even know what it is. And they don't know the purpose of it. You have to worship in spirit and in truth. And God gives his spirit to them that obey. Acts 5.29 Those people don't obey. In fact, they say the law is done away with. Well, God does not give his spirit to people unless they obey the law that simple. So they claim they have the Holy Spirit, but they don't. And they also worship they know not what. Now Satan can appear as an angel of light. The scripture says that. And these Protestants are just like the Pharisees, they're worshipping Satan and don't know it. But Satan and his ministers can be transformed as angels of light so they can give these lovely sermons on Sunday morning or afternoon, and it'll sound so godly and so sanctimonious and so righteous, but it's not coming from God. Would God inspire a Methodist preacher to say that the law is done away and we live under grace only? Not a chance. But it sounds pretty good to those people, and they think the Holy Ghost is teaching that to them. No, they don't have God's Spirit. When Peter said there in Acts 2.38, Repent and be converted that your sins may be washed away and be baptized, he was literally saying you have to change, be converted, change from what you are. And as you change and begin to obey the things of God, then he will give you his Spirit. And you're not baptized until that repentance and conversion begins to happen and your life begins to change. So you're baptized, which pictures death. they don't drag you back out of the water, you'll die right there. So it symbolizes death, just as going through the Red Sea symbolized death. If those waves had crashed in, they would have all died. So that's all baptism represents, basically, is death. Go under the water. If you stay under, you die. If you come up, it's like a resurrection. You get to live. It is only then, when the old man dies and is being put away, that we have the laying on of hands, which is symbolic of conception, and God conceives His Holy Spirit in you. Then you grow over a period of time until you're mature enough spiritually to be in his kingdom. Do you know a Protestant understands that process? Nope, you don't. They may get bits and pieces and smatterings of it, but they don't understand what it's all about. And once you put your hand to the plow, you can't turn back. You've got to keep going. You have to grow, just like a baby in the mother's womb, You've got to grow until you can be mature enough to be born into the kingdom. They think they're already done born again. No, they're not. That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. So if you're still flesh, you're not born again as a spirit. That John 3 makes that very, very clear. I think we generalize and think, well, we're all under the old New Covenant now. There's a generalization. No. But the Protestants think they are, and they're not. They have not been offered eternal life. And they have not obeyed God's laws and His ways. So, this is a pretty special calling here. And it offers something beyond what Abel was doing by sprinkling the blood of animals. We have the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, and it only applies to us if we repent of our sins. And the world does not even recognize sin. They don't know what it is, the Christian world. They they must think it's a bad thought or something, but they don't recognize it as the transgression of the law, because they believe the law is done away with. So they don't even understand what sin is. How do you repent of what you don't know? It's only when you began to learn the truth that God considered giving you his spirit. So there are only a few thousand people on earth who have the spirit of God. The rest are laboring under the the uh, deception that they have the spirit of God when it's actually the spirit of Satan. Did the Pharisees think they were worshiping Satan? No. They thought they were worshiping the God of Abraham, their father. And that's why Christ said, you don't know what you worship. You are sons of your father, the devil. Now, that thought had never crossed their mind. We have people in our society today who are devil worshipers, don't we? And admit it as such. But we have an awful lot of people that think they're Worshiping Jesus, then it's the wrong Jesus. It's a false Christ, Satan. Those are hard words to swallow if you're a Methodist or a Baptist or Presbyterian, but <laughs> that's the actual bottom line truth. And Protestants don't like it when I say that, but then the Pharisees didn't like it when Christ told them they were worshiping the devil. I mean, in that sense, innocently, they don't know that. But that's what it amounts to. So, we have to change gods. (laughs) If we've been a Protestant, we have to change gods from one that does not believe the truth and is against God and uses the name of Jesus but don't do the things he did or follow the things he did or walk as he walked. I don't know whether we thought about it in that sense or not. We thought, well, I, I know about God, and now I'll follow and worship God. We don't realize we were actually giving up an idol of Satan worship and worshiping the true God. But that's what we did when we left the Protestants and began to learn the truth. And only as we obeyed then, or were willing to obey, did God give us his spirit that we might understand and grow in obedience to please him so when he he says this here in verse 24 he's saying a mouthful we've been given an awful lot more than Abel had so let's move on then from that to uh, Genesis 5 let's talk about Enoch a little bit Uh, there's not an awful lot said about Enoch but Paul did say he's going to be in the first resurrection. So he is an important individual because not too many were called out of the Old Testament, and certainly not very many pre-flood. Uh, that, that list is all on one hand. Not much. Anyway, people were living a long time back then, over 900 years, and uh, here in Genesis 5, uh, we have Jared... He lived 162 years and begat Enoch in verse 18 of chapter 5. Uh, people had children when they were four, five, six, seven hundred years of age back then. Uh, things were different. Uh, and Jared lived after begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters, and he lived 962 years and died. Now, Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There's been an awful lot said about this. Uh, Of course, the Protestants think that God took Enoch to heaven, uh, and we know that's not true because Acts tells us that no man has ascended except he which came down, which is Christ. So nobody's gone to heaven but Christ, to the heaven of God's throne. Now, the heaven where the birds fly, uh, people go, and you've been there in airplanes and so on. Uh, And we have examples in the Bible such as Elijah, where God lifted Elijah up and took him somewhere else. Is that what happened with Enoch? Let's consider the world that Enoch was living in. We'll find, as we go into Genesis 6, that it was a very, very evil world. Every thought evil continually. Uh, A violent world. Lots of murder. Lots of trouble. And there was not a church of God. There were no people around who followed God. Enoch was doing this all by himself. How would you like to be on an earth with seven billion people and be the only one trying to follow God and everyone else was going just the opposite direction? Sometimes we think we have it tough. (laughs) And we do, in reality. We're facing a spiritual battle with Satan. We're facing a a spiritual and physical battle with our own nature. Uh, And yet we do have a few around us who are trying to go the same way, and the Scripture says if we encourage each other, that it helps us, that we need to be around those who are seeking to obey God and it stimulates you, and it helps you grow to be around those of like mind who are talking about these things. It's a decided advantage, and that's why God tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and so much the more as we see the end approaching, because we need each other for encouragement and strengthening, and, you know, well, so-and-so's doing it right, and -and so-and-so's doing this and that, and... That encourages us to do the same. I have witnessed and even experienced over the years being away from the church. When I was a kid, there was nobody really out in West Texas uh, to talk to about God and the truth, well, except my uncle. Who was next door, and he'd come over every Friday night and sometimes Sabbath afternoon. We'd talk about world news and the Bible and different things, and that was a real encouragement. But we didn't have a pastor, we didn't have a church, and I've seen people in those circumstances quite a bit in my life uh, before there was a church. You know, nearly every place in America, and people would stagnate. <clears throat> it was hard for them to grow because they didn't have contact. Now, back then, there was virtually no contact. I mean, today, it's somewhat better, at least. You can get tapes and uh, sermons and so on from here, there, and everywhere, and you can have that kind of contact. But human contact means a whole lot more than tape. And I've found that, uh, yeah, you can listen on the telephone, or you can listen to a CD, but it's not the same as it being alive. It's just not the same. It makes a lot of difference. And it's hard for people to grow when they're all out there by themselves. So, in fact, you tend to either stagnate or regress. If you're not going forward, you, you stagnate. <laughs> like water that doesn't move, it just stagnates. So that stimulation is important, and that's why Paul said it there in Hebrews. Hebrews. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And he says, as it gets closer, you're going to need it even more. Well, why? There's more sin around. There's more decadence around. Uh, You see and hear sin more than you used to. Because it's on every screen there is. (laughs) And you're around it more. You're bombarded with it. It's at the basis of most entertainment, is' sin of some kind, uh, whether it's violence or sexual sin or, or you name it, uh, it's put before you. And it's, if you imbibe of it, it, it will take away from your obedience to God and your attitude. So we're in a world that is very, very difficult, and we need each other. We're, we're not islands to ourselves. But here was Enoch, who was in that kind of violent world, the kind of world that we're coming to today, and uh, he was going it alone. And yet he walked with God. It doesn't say much about him or give examples about his life, but he was a righteous man, and he walked with God. Now, God must have let him know what walking with God is all about. If you haven't been instructed, if you don't know God, you don't walk with God. Right? So either Christ had been visiting with uh, him and taught him personally because who else would? There was no one around to teach him the truth. The world was not serving God, it wasn't following God, didn't know God, didn't know much about God anymore. So there was a very close relationship there. Enoch had to have known the laws of God, he had to have known God's purposes. Uh, we'll see in a moment a quote about Enoch that proves he knew the plan of salvation and about the resurrection even back before the flood, and before Abraham, and before Moses. He understood the plan of God. <clears throat> now there's a question, what happened to him? It says all the days <coughs> of Noah, of, uh, of, uh, Enoch were 365 years. Now, does that mean that when God took him somewhere else, maybe away from the violence in the society and the anger that was around. Uh, Did he die at that point? Well, why take him away? It says in the New Testament, translated him. You look that up in the Greek and it, it doesn't mean he changed him into a spirit being and took him to heaven. It means he moved him or took him away. Translated, what do you do when you translate from one language to another? same word same meaning just different sounds translated means moved from this language to that language and you if you know them those languages you know the same things being said just sounds different so he was moved or translated from where he was to somewhere else now it doesn't say where doesn't say what happened But maybe for the record here, it just says that's as long as he lived because he disappeared. God took him away. He probably didn't make a great big announcement, I'm going to be taking Enoch away. Uh, He just disappeared. And people were being killed all the time in that society anyway. Uh, I imagine a lot of bodies disappeared. Who knows what happened to Enoch? He just, he was gone. Uh, Maybe God took him somewhere else like he did Elijah, and possibly he wrote the book of Enoch uh, after that. I don't know that. The scholars argue uh, when the book of Enoch was written and uh, actually who wrote it. Some think that actually this Enoch wrote the book of Enoch, and others scholars think it was written somewhere around the time of Christ, maybe before or even after, uh, because it talks about a lot of things... Uh, about Christ uh, that would have, in that sense, had to have been prophetic. But is that a stretch? Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those prophets wrote about Christ. David did in the Psalms uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born. Those prophecies were written. So God is able to transmit knowledge to people, whether through inspiration or direct talking like he did with some of the uh, prophets, Uh, So they write it down, and it says that the prophets even wondered at times what they were writing about. You know, God said, write this. Okay, I'll write it. What does it mean? What's this talking about? They didn't know. They wrote things that they did not understand. You understand more about what Isaiah and Jeremiah wrote than Isaiah and Jeremiah knew. Because now we have many of the things they wrote that are history. And we have many prophetic things they wrote that are happening right now that they never saw. You think John really understood the book of Revelation when he wrote it? I don't think so. So it's very possible that Enoch wrote of Christ, even before the flood of Noah, I don't know that, but, I mean, nobody knows for sure. The scholars just speculate. But I do know from something that is said here in another scripture that he did understand the plan of salvation. An interesting thing about the book of Enoch is that it describes this land right here in northern Arizona, southern Utah. Describes it to the T. Now, if he was in the Middle East, why was he describing this land here? Just another piece of the puzzle that we can put together. But whoever wrote the book of Enoch, whether it was Enoch himself before the flood, or somebody before Christ was born, or in that neighborhood of that, say, two or 300 year stretch before and after Christ was here, The author was writing about this land right here, describes it. doesn't describe the Middle East. Read the book of Enoch and you'll find some of those things in there if you understand what you're reading about. I I have some quotes marked on some papers, some pages that were uh, printed for me, and I didn't uh, look them up. I don't want to get sidetracked here on that necessarily, but it might be interesting sometime to drag those out and uh, read you those sections that are talking about this area. Uh, I think you'd find that very interesting and it would give you a little more ammunition of of understanding. Anyway, God must have taken him somewhere and maybe he wrote the book of Enoch after he was off by himself. I don't know that. (laughs) That too is somewhat speculative. Okay, let's go to... Uh, Hebrews 11, where he's mentioned. Where all these people we're going to talk about are mentioned. And read what Paul said about Enoch. (coughs) Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Now it says, all his days were 365 in Genesis... Uh, So that is the record of how long he lived there. But here Paul is saying he was removed and did not die at that time. He would not see death. Uh, Why would he see death? He was only 365 years at the time, and people back then were living over 900 years. Well, he was in a violent land, and he was the only one serving God and walking with God, he was in great danger of being murdered. Great danger of being murdered. Just as we have people today who hate Christians of any stripe. And they will murder them if they get a chance. So, uh, he was the only one in a whole violent world. And there could have been a billion people or more at that time. (coughs) so he was removed so that he would not see death. So that implies to me that he lived on as a human being because we already know from Scripture he couldn't have gone to heaven and uh, been changed into whatever Protestants think you're changed into when you go, a spirit or a spook. So it says Enoch's faith is what led God to protect him and remove him so he would not die. Now, has he died since? Yes. It is appointed to all men once to die. So, that scripture is untrue if he didn't at some point die. Because it's appointed that all men will. So, he didn't get just suddenly jerked up to heaven and not die. He was not found because God had removed him. For before his removal, he he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, the next verse tells us that he must have had faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There's a lot said in verse 6. You've got to really believe there is a living God a being who has arms and legs and a face and a mind and thinks and acts in the universe. A lot of people don't think that God is really alive. They can't define that. They don't understand that, that He's a living being. You have to understand and grasp that. And also that being a living being who cares... If you diligently seek Him and obey Him, He will reward you. That's important for each and every one of us to truly grasp, is that our work will not be in vain. If we truly seek God, we will be rewarded. We can have confidence and belief in that. Again, as I said yesterday, it's not just a hope against hope, or a wish, or, well, that'd be nice. No, it's a real living thing, and you can count on it. God does not lie. He wouldn't promise us eternal life and all the blessings of Revelation 21, no more pain, no more fear, no more tears, uh, no sorrow, no death. He wouldn't promise us those things unless He fully intended to deliver them. And we know that if we diligently seek Him, we're going to have those things. You you don't have to worry about it. It will happen. All right, let's go on to Jude 14 very short book here that Jude wrote about people basically who depart from God. But there's one quote here about Enoch. Uh, Verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, he was in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied of these Now, of who? These that Jude is talking about up here, who, uh, verse 8, Likewise these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion or authority, and speak evil of dignitaries or people in authority. And yet even Michael, when contending with the devil over Moses, didn't even bring a railing accusation against the devil, but said, The eternal rebuke you. So he recognized the power, of Satan, he recognized the office as the ruler of present ruler of the earth that he holds, and he didn't even rail against the devil himself. That's how much respect he had for the authority that God had conferred on Satan. But when God puts someone in an office and gives them authority and power, we're not to speak against them. Even the devil himself. Have you ever gotten that out of that? And really thought it through? Satan had an office. He had been given rulership of the earth. He offered it to Christ, if he would worship Him. And he had the right to offer it, except it was an offer that would not happen. In other words, he, he lied to him, but he was the ruler of the earth. He said, if you'll worship me, I'll make you the ruler of the earth. And then he would have still been in charge because he'd have put Christ under him. So he was offering something that he really wasn't offering. <clears throat> but he did hold that position. And Michael, the archangel, one of the covering cherubs of God, recognized the authority that Satan had and would not rail against him, or talk down about him, but said, The Eternal rebuke you. I don't rebuke Satan. Do you? I ask God to do it. The Eternal rebuke you, just like this. I don't have the power to rebuke Satan. He's a lot more powerful and stronger than I am. Why would he do what I say? But he's afraid of the name of Christ. So we can rebuke him in Christ's name, and he has to listen to that. But your name and mine—what what was it? The, the example there in the Gospels where uh, two went out and, and tried to cast Satan out, <laughs> and he attacked them and ran them off, as I recall the story. And uh, we said, "You can't do this. He's more powerful than you are. You got to call on the name of God on Christ." who is more powerful than he is. (coughs) So we need to be a lot more careful about the things that we say and who we say them about. But this is the very type of thing that was going on, and he says, verse 12, these are spots in your feasts of love when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withers without fruit, twice dead, in other words, headed for the lake of fire, die once physically and once eternally, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, and then they're compared to demons. Men who have these attitudes have demonic Satan or Satanic attitudes, and it morphs into that here to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Mankind who disobeys and has satanic attitudes will be in the blackness of darkness forever. Eternal death. The angel, the demons themselves, may be in a prison in darkness forevermore, but they'll still be conscious. And that's even worse than being dead forever when you have this kind of outlook on life. So Enoch, the seventh, prophesied of these. So Enoch understood and was a prophet, saying, here's what he says uh, Enoch prophesied, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So he understood the return of Christ. He understood that the saints would rise to meet him in the air. And that they would come back with him to put down rebellion on the earth. And at the time that he changed Satan, because once we're with him, we are ever with him. We never leave him. He will always be with us and we will always be with him wherever he goes. Enoch understood that and prophesied these things. Going on, to execute judgment upon all. He understood the plan of salvation, probably when all would be judged. Now, we understand through the holy days, the second resurrection, and the opportunity people who lived from Adam on, who never had the truth and were never called, never offered the new covenant, will be resurrected and offered it. So he understood the feast and the last great day, or at least he understood the events that those depict when they were instituted to teach us that, but he already understood it. And to convict all that are ungodly among among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. So did he understand obedience to God and God's laws and ungodliness? and ungodly deeds, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So he understood Christ is coming back with his bride to judge the earth during the millennium, great white throne judgment, when those people are resurrected. Where is he going to get those tens of thousands of saints? Got to resurrect them. So he had to understand that. He also understood that it wasn't billions and billions of people who would be in the first resurrection. Tens of thousands. 144,000 is tens of thousands. It's not millions of millions or billions of billions. It's tens of thousands. 144,000 altogether. So, could Enoch have written the book of Enoch with some of its prophetic things that are in it? I think that's a distinct possibility that that book of Enoch may have been written by Enoch with instruction from God. And we see right here in Jude that he understood a great deal of the plan of God and was able to prophesy these things. So if there are things in the book of Enoch about prophecies of Christ or prophecies of the end time... uh, We see here in the Scripture that he knew of those things and therefore possibly could have written them. And that book may indeed have been written by him. him. Why was it not included in the Bible then? Enoch, a prophet of God, wrote those things. Now, if he was taken away, and it was after he was removed and went somewhere else that he made these prophecies... Who did he talk to? Nobody. And nobody would have listened. But if he wrote them down, they would be for those who would read them later. Now, there's some incredible things in the book of Enoch that sound almost bizarre and beyond belief. But then there are a lot of things in the Bible that are almost bizarre and beyond belief. Isn't it it bizarre? You've seen death, haven't you? Of humans, of animals... Chickens, cows, goats, deer, birds. What happens to them? They rot and stink. And when humans die, they rot and stink. Well, unless you cremate them. Then they rot quickly and stink quickly, and the smell goes up and dissipates in smoke. Still stunk. And they're reduced to dirt and ash real fast rather than deteriorating underground. But isn't it a pretty incredible thing to consider? When you've seen death, I've gone out and seen a cow that died and she's all bloated up that big around and and is emitting smell and stink from every end. Terrible, terrible smells. And humans are the same way. Can you imagine that something that dead and that smelly and that rotted... Could come up out of the ground and live again. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> Just one little example. Well, I say little. It's a pretty big example, but still, in all, to realize that this book contains things like that, and then I read some things in the Book of Enoch that seem, wow, how could that be? Well, how could a resurrection occur? But it can, and it will. And Christ has been resurrected to prove it. So we have that to look forward to. So yes, it's very possible he wrote that, and maybe a reason it's not in the Bible is that it describes this area. And God didn't want mankind really to know about Zion and the Jerusalem that's been uh, desolate for many generations, even known about until now. And it's been revealed to just a few dozen people, but soon the whole world is going to know, from east to west, that God is God, and this is his original cradle of civilization. I believe that. And that's in the book of Enoch, describing this place. Maybe God didn't want that in the Bible, but he just sort of kept the book of Enoch aside, Book of Jasher the same way. <laughs> There's some pretty incredible things in the book of Jasher which are kinda of hard to grasp, and yet it's mentioned in scripture. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? It says there in Kings or or Chronicles, wherever it is. So Enoch understood quite a bit more than maybe we have grasped that he did. And where do we get it? Just out of two verses, Hebrews eleven five and Jude 14. Uh, shows us that the man understood a whole lot more than we would have even considered that he might have known. I don't think I ever really thought about that. How much did Enoch understand, or how much did Noah understand? And yet we have a testimony from Jude himself, who must have gotten it from Christ, that Enoch knew about the resurrection of the saints and them coming with Christ. It wasn't all just Old Covenant back then. Enoch understood eternal life and the possibility of being given eternal life. So what I was saying earlier about the Old Covenant judging mankind today is just physical death. But a very few of us have been offered the New Covenant and we face spiritual death if we don't follow through. Eternal death. Now is our chance. Judgment is now upon the house of God, the church of God, the called out ones. Everybody else ever lived won't have a chance until the millennium or great white throne judgment, except you and me. They will then be judged on how they live that physical life You and I are having our chance, our one and only chance, right now. Let's not blow it. Let's be sure we make it. Let's be sure we seek God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, so that He will reward us since we diligently sought Him. Well, I was going to go into Noah some, but... We're already afternoon, and my voice is getting a little scratchier, and I I went overtime yesterday, so I think I'll cut it a little short today, and on average, then, we're about right. So let's stop there for today.